Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. On Friday, a 13-year-long court battle got a ruling from BC's highest court. Well, at its heart, it's um, a challenge to the basic principle of public Medicare. That's Colleen Flood. That we should allocate medical resources on the basis of need and not ability to pay. Colleen is a professor at the University of Ottawa and a university research chair in health law and policy. She's also co-author of the book, Is Two-Tier Healthcare the Future? Here's what the case is about. Dr. Day and uh, the private clinic that he runs, Canby Surgical Services, are arguing that laws that exist in British Columbia need to be cast aside to permit a large private tier on top of the public tier, given that there are long wait times in the healthcare system. And of course, you know, there are arguments right now, given how tough things are in terms of access and wait times as we deal with the pandemic, you know, have a, have a lot of resonance for people. So, It's true that emergency rooms are closing in parts of the country, and wait times at other ERs are up to 11 hours long. Some say our system is on the brink of collapse. But the court didn't buy Dr. Day's argument that effectively privatizing more health care would help. At the trial and at the appeal level, both courts accepted the government's arguments that actually, you know, this is a bit of a poisoned chalice. Poisoned chalice. As in, the solution of privatizing healthcare would actually be the source of more problems in healthcare. That allowing a privateer on top of public Medicare would actually most likely harm people left behind in the public system, cause wait times get longer, and exacerbate um, access problems. So the court ruled, but... The story isn't over yet. Dr. Day is expected to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they might take it on. Today, we'll ask Colleen to walk us through this case, and what she thinks could actually help fix Canada's healthcare. This is The Decibel. Colleen, it's great to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure, Monica. Thanks for inviting me. Would you say, was the BC Court of Appeal ruling, was this a win for Canadian Medicare? Well, yes. Um, you know, I've, I've worked on these issues for a really long time, and it does seem a bit sad that a win for Canadian Medicare is just keeping the status quo. But we can't really do much if we can't commit to this core concept of access on the basis of need and not ability to pay. I mean, we, we seem to be constantly in a rear guard sort of trying to defend that against privatization as opposed to improving the public health care system. So there's you know, certainly no doubt right now that public Medicare needs a huge improvement. We need to do much more about wait times and access issues, and we need to restore the trust of Canadians in public Medicare. 
So that has to happen. And, you know, these kind of snake oil solutions of, well, let's just privatize parts or all of it. So some of us, at least, you know, probably you or I would have better access to care, you know, and it'll all be rainbows and ponies then. This will not improve the public Medicare for everyone. So this case did present a charter challenge. Dr. Day said that people suffer needlessly while waiting in the public system. So he argued that that goes against Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, And that's the section that talks about the right to life, liberty and security of the person. When they gave their ruling, what did the justices have to say about that? Well, the the judgment uh, underscores the suffering of people who have to wait too long, both from the perspective of security of the person and even possibly life, if you know things are left to unwind for too long. So, life and security of the person, and sort of pointy-headed uh, legal speak, we would say those rights are engaged. Uh, but it's not over just because you make a claim that uh, security of the person is jeopardized. Then the question is, you know, whether that deprivation is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice under Section 7. Mm. So, you know, I think a lot of Canadians, when they read particularly these kind of brief media summaries of the case, might come away thinking that, you know, Dr. Day or the court has found that all Canadians, you know, have a, some kind of right under Section 7 to avoid long wait times. That is not what the court said. This is only about the ability to jump the queue to buy private health care. And it is not about really even the patient's rights to do this because most of the laws that they're talking about really restrict what physicians can do. So the laws that he's challenging are laws that prevent doctors extra billing. So extra billing is where doctors charge more than what they get from the public plan, prevent doctors imposing user charges, so just charging patients straight out for the services that they receive, you know, whether it's a hip operation or a knee operation, and a law that restricts what we call dual practice. So there's a law that says, physicians, you have to either build a public plan, and if you don't want to do that, you have to opt out completely and work within the private sector. So These are the laws that he was challenging, that he was seeking to overturn. So you see that the claim is really about not my right to health or timely treatment, but it is connected to this idea that I should be able to buy quicker care in the private market. This idea of buying quicker cares is is a really interesting point that I think a lot of people probably think about when we, especially these days, when we're talking about these crazy long wait times that we are mm-hmm. seeing across the country for people to get care. Yeah. Um, it was up to nine hours at Vancouver General Hospital's ER last month. That's a long time to wait in the ER. Uh, a patient in Fredericton actually reportedly died in an ER waiting room uh, after waiting for hours to be seen. Montreal, the Children's Hospital, was at such a critical level uh, recently that they had to turn away some patients. So this is, is we're in a pretty dire situation in a lot of places here. And and people may argue that paying to get healthcare faster should be a consideration. What would you say to that? Uh, well, absolutely. I, I understand people's frustration and concern. And, um, you know, I think we uh, are all feeling that. 
My sister is an emergency doctor in Melbourne and Australia, and they have a two-tier healthcare system, and she's facing the same issues in the ER. You know, she has patients that need to go to intensive care, and the intensive care doctor comes and tells her, well, they can't take them because they don't have enough nurses to care for them up there. So her ER is full of intensive care patients, and she doesn't have the nurses to care for them there either as well. So I guess the question is, why not? And um, you know, first, when you look at two-tier healthcare systems, generally they do not provide, the private part doesn't want to provide the expensive, difficult parts of healthcare. So they don't generally provide emergency care. They don't generally provide really expensive, complex care like oncology care or cardiac care. You know, they don't do these things. They tend to do the cheaper, easier things that they can turn a profit on, like um, the ectomies, the tonsillectomies, the hip operations, the knee operations, these kinds of things. So, you know, if we think that it's a solution for most of us, it doesn't really turn out to be so unless, you know, first you can qualify for private insurance. Uh, good luck if you're elderly or have multiple comorbidities. Um, and then secondly, you know, they're actually providing the kind of service that you want. So it really only works if you need elective surgery. So that's the first thing. Um, but the second thing is to realize that if we have an extreme shortage now of nurses and physicians in the public healthcare system, then by definition, this can only be worse if we attract many of them away to work in a private tier. And you know, we may be attracting um, oncology nurses to now be doing hip operations and knee operations and ankle operations and these kinds of things. And there is evidence for this from many other countries when we study them that this in fact occurs. And in those countries that permit two-tier healthcare, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to regulate this problem, how to work around this problem, that it's really difficult for them to keep their labor supply within the public health care system. How much do we pay for health care in Canada and, and compared to maybe some other countries here? So when we look at systems that have a greater role for private financing, you know, the exemplar here is the United States. You know, when, one interesting fact, I think, is to understand that when we look at the American healthcare system, that because of the pressure that private finance puts on um, prices, so it helps push prices up all the time, that the Americans, even though they don't cover everybody, they actually spend more tax dollars, more public dollars per capita than Canada does. All right, so I just want to repeat that, that they spend more tax dollars, more public dollars per capita than Canada does. So we just did some numbers on the back of the envelope here from Kaihai, um, the Canadian Institute for Health Information and, uh, you know, a good, a great repository for statistics on public and private financing um, from uh, two years ago. And that equates to about 6,659 tax dollars per person in the United States. So 6,659 compared to Canada, 4,660 uh, tax dollars per person. So you see, we spend a lot less tax-wise than the U.S. does because the private part pushes prices up. And, and this was something that the 
the court and the court of appeal and the trial judge took recognition of the fact that adding in more private finance will also cause price pressure on the public healthcare system, meaning that, for example, just to keep those doctors and nurses in the public plan, the public system is going to have to increase what it pays them so that they're not lured away uh, increasingly to the private sector. I do want to ask you about private clinics that operate in Canada, because we do have private clinics in Canada currently. But can you help us understand what is the relationship right now between public and private health care in Canada? There's public and private finance, and then there's public and private delivery. So in public and private finance, uh, the public Medicare, as we think of it, the part protected by the Canada Health Act, is essentially hospital and physician services. And for those things, we have, um, you know, very significant public funding, uh, like 95, 96%. But there is still some private finance, so private cosmetic surgery, um, IVF services, you know, things that are deliberately left out of public plans. Uh, And then we have, uh, in addition to that, we have a lot of private financing, private insurance and out-of-pocket payments for, for example, prescription drugs. Then on the delivery side, we've got a whole bunch of stuff, and most of it is actually private. You know, your family doctor is not employed by the state. Um, They are little independent entrepreneurs normally. Sometimes they work alone. Sometimes they work in teams. But they're businesses, Um, so they're not directly controlled by the government. Same with hospitals, they are private uh, for-profit, but, you know, we call them public hospitals because they're publicly financed, but they really have private and independent governance. Then we have a whole bunch of little private clinics like Canby and others um, we have, which may or may not receive funding from the state. We have bucket loads of MRI clinics and diagnostic clinics. Generally, they're publicly financed, but they're private for-profit firms normally working for the public plan. It sounds like you're saying that the two-tier system is not the solution, but people are waiting for a long time to get health care sometimes in the country. Okay. So what actually is the solution here? I think right now in the midst of a pandemic, there needs to be, you know, a, a, a federal provincial summit and, you know, some kinds of emergency measures taken to help in emergency rooms. There needs to be perhaps some, um, you know, significant e- efforts taken to bring back retired nurses and others. Right, We have an immediate, I think, problem that is in the nature of an emergency. Uh, and I think federal and provincial governments need to respond to this as a matter of top priority. People, no one, no Canadian should ever die in an emergency room. But then the second, you know, the other things that we can do, you know, sometimes I feel that the only response to this is we have to pour billions of dollars into the healthcare system. You know, often doctors um, and healthcare professionals say, well, the only solution is just more of us. We need more of us. And there is some truth in that. We do need, I think, more nurses. We def- definitely need more highly trained personal support workers and we need to pay them more. But 
a bunch of this is around organization. And I'll give you a personal example. I was at my family doctor last week and she's wonderful, but she, uh, I needed to be referred to um, an ear, nose and throat specialist. And so what happens from there is that, you know, her assistant calls their assistant and they sort of put me vaguely in the queue and, um, you know, but she doesn't know, you know, are, are there other ENT uh, specialists? Who are, who are they all within driving distance? Uh, do they have cancellations, et cetera, et cetera? She doesn't know whether there are other priority patients around that should be queued up before me. Uh, probably they should be. Uh, because my need isn't particularly high. Um, so there's none of this that happens at a systems level. It's a cottage industry of family doctors, you know, trying to connect with the specialists that they may or may not know. Uh, hopefully, you know, the assistant calls the other assistant. You know, but sometimes, you know, you, you might have had this experience yourself. You call back, you know, a month or two later and find out that that actually that phone call didn't happen or that referral didn't happen. And that's why you're left floundering about. So far too many people spend too long, you know, falling through the cracks. Can we look to anywhere else in the world that's actually done this, that has a successful system that, that as, as Canadians, we can look to, to, to as maybe an example of what we could aspire to or try to get? You know, I think for me, one some of the things that I've seen um, with respect to access and wait times is that if governments actually put their shoulder to the wheel and they commit to solving the problem, they say, here is the problem of wait times. We want to get wait times down to a manageable level. You know, say, for example, in the UK, they they gunned for a three-month maximum. And in the past, their wait times had been years they put targets in place. They actually sometimes called it targets and terror. So managers had to meet those wait time measures. And they did so in, with all sorts of, in all sorts of different ways, right? So, you know, to sort of say, well, there's one way to get there. Um, I think that's a little bit of hubris. There are multiple ways to get there. But to commit to that and to honor that pledge and to say to Canadians, this is what you sh should be able to expect. You should not have to wait, for example, for elective surgery ever more than three months. And if that's the case, here's where you go to make a complaint. Here's where you go to have this issue resolved. People need to have somewhere to take their concerns rather than being lost in the system. Colleen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Medica, it was lovely to talk to you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.